Digital 410 Productions proudly presents What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast with your host, Don Everett. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. And I hope everybody's doing well, and I just splattered my mic, but that's right, I hope everybody's doing well in the midst of the coronavirus outbreak 2020. If you're like we are here down in Florida, your schools have just been closed for undesired amount of time, I think two, three weeks for some of you. Now, we here in Southwest Florida, our schools are already in spring break. And so spring break technically ends this Friday. And then starting next week is the first week of the school cancellation. But if uh, word stays true, as they've been saying, uh, we're going to start our digital learning here shortly. Now, interestingly enough, my fiance is a school teacher and I have a 12-year-old. And my fiance is like, I don't know how to do this digital learning stuff. Some people are suggesting we make videos to upload to Google Classroom so that the young kids, because she teaches fourth grade, can see us because obviously some of them are going to miss us. Uh, they don't have the best home life. We're kind of like the the shining light in their, their eyes. And I explained to her, well, not only do we have a podcast studio, but we have four cameras in there. We broadcast live every Sunday or Monday on the uh, Waterman and D-Train show. So I told her, dear, we have the equipment. We have the technology. We can make it work. And so that may be going on here at the At Computer Studio before too long. Um, but I hope all is well with you guys. Um, I recently started, as we spoke last week, about a new segment on the show called uh, History Through Photos. And last night I kind of went down a wormhole. Um, as you guys know, last week I started the first segment of the History Through Photos in which I shared uh, with the history of a new canteen that I found. And we talked about that last week. Well, last night I wanted to do the second part of the series, uh, which is another canteen, but we're going to go with the black enameled canteens. And the one that I have, interestingly enough, it's chipped at the bottom, but it does say USREP and the 1942s chipped off. But doing some research, I found out that that canteen was made by the Republic Stamping and Enamel Company. Now, here's the crazy part. The Republic Stamping and Enamel Company was based out of Canton, Ohio. And what little research I was able to find, there's literally like five pages on Google of any information about this company, but there's no information other than the fact that it existed in Canton, Ohio. There was an eBay sale of an old postcard of the plant, which I bought for six bucks. So I'll have that here shortly. And then there are references to the owners of the Republic Stamping and Enamel, the Republic Stamping and Enameling Company. That's a mouthful. And their contributions to the city of Canton, Ohio in the development, how they helped funded the airport and all that. But I cannot find anything except for there was a very cool auction of a photo album that somebody took during the 40s of a day on the life working there. But I can't find any information exactly of the lifespan of the company, the employees, any information on their government contracts, what all they made. Did they just make the small run of porcelain canteens? Did they make other stuff? I did find an eBay auction of some um, aluminum or stainless steel cups that were used in the military during the Korean War. But I'm really not having any luck. So first and foremost, if any of you know anything whatsoever... Because now I'm, I'm fascinated because here's another canteen that I have. Um, the first one, the company ended up moving in the 60s through the 80s to Chillicothe, Ohio. Once again, I'm from Ohio. My relatives are actually from Chillicothe. And now 
Another canteen that I have was made in Canton, Ohio. But this place is literally nothing on the web. I actually reached out to the historical preservation group who preserve historical landmarks in Canton, Ohio, asking them if they knew anybody locally who knew anything about this company. And they replied with some information uh, telling me to reach out to some uh, local museums in Canton. So that's my next stop because now I'm really curious and I want to provide as much information on this canteen for the website because we're all about history here. So what I'll probably do is uh, for the next edition of History Through Photos, I'm probably going to provide you guys with some photos about another piece of artifact that I have that's not a canteen. And then um, if I find some more information on the on the uh, company, the Republic Stamping and, and Enameling, that's, that's still a mouthful, the Republic Stamping and enamel, Enameling, I give up. You know what I mean. Company, I will present that to you guys on the website. And if you guys haven't been to the website, if you download this through Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, that's great. But be sure to check out the website, www.wtspworldwar2.com. And as always, if you know any vets or anyone alive during the 40s who may be interested in getting their history, their story out there, please send us an email at mailcall at wtspworldwar2.com or info at wtspworldwar2.com. Either one of those will get to us. Please send that information so we can uh, try to get some more interviews with those who are there. And of course, if you know any authors, anybody who provides any sort of um, contribution to the preservation of the history of World War II, who may want to provide some content to the show, who know some history, who want to talk to our audience, if you yourself say, how do I get on that show? I really want to talk to the audience. I want to talk to Don and conversate. You too can do that by going to uh, emailing us at info at WTSPWorldWar2.com or you can simply send us a private message on our Facebook page and you can just search on Facebook for the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast and you can find us there. And while you're on the website, if you could please click that beautiful orange logo on the right-hand side that says Patreon. First uh, tier is a dollar a month. $12 a year, you can support the show. If you really like the show, $3.50 a month. And if you love the show, you can sign up for the Long Arms Deep Pocket Plan at $7.50 a month. And after month two, you get some free t-shirts or a free t-shirt, to be honest. And right now, um, hopefully within the week, I will be rolling out some die-cut vinyl window stickers with the WTSP Lucky Strike logo. And if you are a Patreon member, you will get one for free. I've been demo testing all my new stickers from all the podcasts with the what we refer to as the OG5, the original five. Those are our longtime hardcore fans. But Nate, even if you're new to the podcast, you can become a new old school long-term fan by signing up for Patreon and getting access to all of that free exclusive content as well as exclusive videos and access to the exclusive um, Patreon podcast, What's in Your Head. So please go to WTSPWorldWar2.com. Click on the Patreon link, sign up. Even if it's only a dollar, you get access to all the exclusive stuff, including the sticker, except for the t-shirt. The t-shirt is available for the $7.50 a month plan. And as always, this episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast has been brought to you by our friends at At Computers. And right now is a busy time. I was thinking as I was driving around today, you know, luckily here in Florida, we haven't had the um, the de- declaration of... Um, importance. I can't think of the word right now off the top of my head. Um, the one that says essential services, that's the one. 
And I was thinking, you know, if we had the declaration of essential services, I would still be considered a central service because I am one of those people that set up people's offices to allow their employees to work from home. So I've been super busy. Now, I know what you're thinking, Don, working from home ain't big. You just got to set remote desktop on your Windows computer at work. And that's true. Absolutely 100% true. And especially if you have static IP. If you don't have static IP, yes, I know you're a smart guy. You do the, do, the D, D, and S. But what I can tell you is this. If you do all that, even if you use a custom board number by changing your registry entries, hackers will still get into your computer using remote desktop. That's one of the easiest ways to um, unsecure your network. So if you're working from home and you're not going to use a splash top or log me in, go to my PC, what have you, whether you think it's cost prohibitive or it's just you don't like it, if you're going to go the remote desktop route, I behoove you to contact Act Computers at 239-283-1120 or through their Facebook page or through act-capecoral.com. Click on the contact us link and have them install Duo on your computer and or your server, whatever device you're allowing people to log in remotely. And that is two-form authentication. Kind of like when you log into your Gmail account for the first time from a new computer on your phone if you're an Android user or if you have a Google app. It'll pop up and say, hey, is this you? And it'll give you a number and you hit yes. And it'll allow you to log in. If not, it won't. Same thing. We'll install Duo on your workstation or your server. When you go to log in with that insecure remote desktop, we'll also install Duo on your phone. And so when you make that connection, it'll pop up on your phone and say, is this you? You hit yes. If you don't hit yes, it does not allow the login. And more importantly, if that attempt is made multiple times, it'll lock out and no one can get into that device using remote desktop. And so it's the best way to secure your uh, equipment that you're opening up for remote login. And going hand in hand with that, the remote login through remote desktop through unsecured connections is one of the way people's computers are getting hacked with uh, ransomware. These guys will log in, they'll hack into your computer and they'll uh, use that access and they will put ransomware in your computer and encrypt everything. And if you have local remote backups, that's fine where it backs up to a local, you know, whether it's an external hard drive, a network device, a computer, what have you, that's great, except for most of these are worms and your devices you have hooked up to your computer or on your network, chances are that data will get encrypted. So it's super important to go with some online backup, whether it's through at computers or anybody else, it, it will be, it's so important right now. Backup your data online so that if you get encrypted, your data is more likely to be safe because it's backed up online. And these are both services that Act Computers offers. Give Act Computers a call at 239-283-1120. Say the word podcast, and they will hook you up with online backup for $0.07 cents a gig per month for the entire year. And they can also hook you up with the Duo 2-form authentication. It has a monthly fee for each user. It's very low. And obviously, if you need a plethora, yes, I said a plethora, of users, they'll give you a bulk rate on that as well. Dear friend, I received your card and was glad to hear from you. I guess you are busy getting ready for Christmas. I am working hard every day to get my piano paid for, and I'm taking music lessons, so you know I am not sitting around and not doing nothing. How's Florence? And tell her I think of her often. Merry Christmas to all. Myrtle. A simple message delivered via what would be considered a text message of the time, a short and sweet postcard, full color view, artist rendition, of the Republic Stamping and Enameling Company, Canton, Ohio. 
Postage date December 18th to one Miss Esther Barron of Massillon, Ohio. Sadly, the year on the postage stamp doesn't come out. But interestingly enough, there's a very curious stamp on here. It's the green George Washington one cent stamp. And after doing some quick research on this particular stamp, it turns out this stamp was actually issued between 1912 and 1914. Now this is a long way away, way before the Republic Stamping and Enameling Company would find themselves stamping out thousands of porcelain canteens in the early parts of the war, 1942. If you or any of your friends have any information on the Republic Stamping and Enameling Company of Canton, Ohio, please send us an email to info at wtspworldwar2.com because we'd love to complete the story about this company. I said next guest, our only guest, and joining us right now via the phones is a gentleman I just became aware of. We've been talking the last few days. Uh, a mutual friend of ours, Galen Wagner, who's been on the show a few times, has hooked us up. Uh, Mr. Daryl Price. Daryl, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? Well, you know, despite all the craziness that's going on, um, I made the logistical mistake of deciding I want to make hamburgers for dinner tonight. And I had everything but hamburger buns. And uh, here in the house, certain people don't like to eat hamburgers on bread. You know, I grew up poor, so I'm all about that. But certain people like buns, and there's no buns to be had in this town, so we had spaghetti. <laughs> but, um, you know, we're all suffering, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, it's just been a logistics nightmare. Well, uh, first and foremost, where are you located? Everybody knows I'm down here in southwest Florida. Where are you currently located? I live in Sterlington, Louisiana, which is just north of Monroe, Louisiana. And last night you were explaining to me you work for the fine people at the Coca-Cola Company, and right now in my uh, At Computers studio, I am staring across at a 1944 drink Coca-Cola bottle cooler. It's it's one of the key possessions in my uh, Coca-Cola collection. I do have a reproduction 1945 ice chest out in my garage but i'm a huge fan of coca-cola and so oh, when nice. you said you worked for coke last night i was super excited but uh you were explaining to me that often as you guys do because obviously coke owns water bottle companies as well you know you guys do more than just right. soda but whenever there is a natural disaster or a time where bottled water is needed and um needed drastically obviously the coca-cola company they're not just going to drop off pallets of coke and set up a, a you know cash register say okay a dollar bottle they they go they go ahead and bottle up stuff and they give it away you know through destinations and all that and you were explaining to me last night that for the last what a week or so you guys have been just water 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 right we are a water hub uh disaster water hub for uh louisiana in the event of hurricanes we ship it all down south and we keep uh 80 to 85,000 cases of water, half liter waters, the 24 pack Dasani that you see in stores. And we, yeah, we've shipped it all out and we're waiting on water to, to reach us so we can redistribute it. But it went out basically in two days. Well, that, we shipped it out. Well, you said something interesting. Maybe most people don't realize you said you're waiting on water to get to you. Do you guys not just right. hook up to the city water line? Do you, what is it brought in through trucks? No. No, no. The the water, is, Dasani water, is bottled just like uh, just like a Coke is. It goes through the osmosis process, so it's purified water. It's not spring water or anything. So it's purified water. So it, 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 there is a, a bottling plant for that runs just. They have a water line just to run Dasani. So it, you know, there's more of a process to it. 
and <clears throat> we have the it's the smart water if you're familiar with that smart smart mm-hmm. water products sure. and vitamin water by glass uh that that's our product as well but our main line is the dasani that's the coca-cola brand so that's the one that we push the most and we have an out-of-state source for that water and they source the whole state of louisiana so it's kind of hard for them to keep up right now but we're catching back up slowly but surely we're catching up and so when you're not uh working and uh, driving for the uh, coca-cola company you um what do you do in your spare time i understand you're a living historian like most of us here uh listening to the what's the scuttlebutt podcast let's give our audience a little background about you and um how you got interested in living history well i've, I've been reenacting since uh 1990 1995 wow and uh i started in the civil war and i, I rode with a great unit from texas uh the 8th Texas Mounted Cavalry, Terry's Texas Rangers. We had three companies in Texas, a lot of mounted guys. They were really good guys. And then from there, I progressed to World War II, where we reenacted the 82nd Airborne 505th Regiment. What years was and, that? Uh, that was 2000, 2002 through 2000. Uh, 15. So right around the time everybody was doing 101st, you guys were sticking true and doing the 82nd Airborne, representing that side of the uh, the jump stick. Well, that's right. Everywhere you went, you know, you, you saw there were a lot of 506 reenactors because of Band of Brothers and Saving Private Ryan. And we had some local vets. They were here that were 82nd Airborne vets. And, you know, they were always, how come nobody you know, represents us because we were there, you know, earlier and we were, you know, the, the, the whole pride thing. So we wanted to do something for them. And every time period we've reenacted with World War II or Vietnam, we do it with the vets. We want them included into it as much as possible to act as instructors. Because anytime you're sitting around some of these guys, they've always got a story to tell. And, you know, those stories are, are you know, they're for us to retail somewhere else, you know. So if you if you don't pay attention, you're missing a big history lesson. Well, not only that, if you're um, new to this hobby or you're wanting to um, expand from your group you're currently with and you want to get involved in doing history programs around your city or your state, a lot of times it's a lot easier to, I don't want to say convince, but to get the local parks or uh, museums or local living history locations to agree to allow you to do an event if you're representing a group that either trained in the state or in that city or somewhere in the the region. And not only that, but you're also more likely to find um, relatives of people who served in that, whether it's a company, a battalion, or what have you, from that local region. And um, I don't know, I, I think it's, I think it tends to draw in more attention and more appreciation when you're doing an event if if at all, you can represent a local, you know, a branch or a group that is heavily represented by your area, whether through vets or the family members of vets. Right. It, it's it's a huge plus, you know. It, uh, when you, you know, some of the vets that I've worked with with Vietnam vets, uh, and that currently that's my impression I'm doing now is the the first cab division, the recon platoon of the first of the ninth. It's made famous in Apocalypse now, but the uh, 
having them, they come in and work, they volunteer at museums and we volunteer and, and, you know, you're meeting them. So they kind of like, we adopted them and they adopted us to do an impression of, of their unit. And because, and it puts a more personal touch on it and it, it does keep them involved and, 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 you know, it, it keeps them energetic and working in, in the museum. And you're right about the, um, when you get, when you do get, that kind of support from the local veterans, when they see that you appreciate what's going on and you're genuine about it, they do tend, it helps you out with the, the civic leaders, uh, event hosts. You know, we do some, we do some living history for uh, Fort Polk. And the Army has been really, really good to us by allowing us to come on and stay on post. And that wouldn't, that wouldn't be so if we didn't have a relationship with the vets that we do. Well, not only that, but you're reinstilling in the mem- the the minds of the vets that hey, you guys haven't been forgotten. Not only have you not been right. forgotten, but we want to talk to you. We want you to come out. We want to sit down. We want you to tell us the mundane stuff that no one cares about. You know, what was the proper way to tie your boots? You know, the the great detail stuff that we living historians look for. You know how you know. How exactly did you guys roll your sleeves? Did, or did, in fact, you roll your sleeves? Is that something that Hollywood made up? You know, And by having access, especially with Vietnam, those guys are getting older, but let's be honest, they're a great deal younger than the World War II vets who were getting harder and harder to find. And so those resources are you know, almost gone, sadly, which is why it's even more important that um, you know, if people know any vets or anyone alive during that time who want to get their story out, whether it's through interviews with me or local groups in their area, if you know anybody who was around at time, please, if you want to reach out to me, info at WTSPRollWar2.com or find a living history group around you and get those stories out there. But um, it's just so important. And you and I were briefly talking last night as living historians because, you know, our civilian counterparts, they, they kind of think we're just cosplayers or, or dopes or old grown men who are trying to play army. And that's getting a little easier to deal with now with the you know, population and the overall acceptance, especially against the younger generations of cosplay. But when veterans or even active service personnel come up to you and thank you for what you're doing, thank you for keeping the memory of the military and what they do alive um, and spreading that information, it just makes us feel more justified in what we're doing and the time and energy and let alone money we're spending to do it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's a, that's a great feeling, you know, when the the vets when they want to spend time with you when you know and and that that makes you feel good it makes you feel like you're doing something right it's in taken in the right spirit and that's what you you know sometimes that bad in the hobby because you got so many mindsets you know people are interested in vehicles or guns or whatever but mm-hmm. and but as long as you keep the the history you know they are the history there, there was a line from a, a book about the Civil War that says, "If you want, if you want to know the history of the battle, consult the history book." I can only tell you what I saw. Sure. And 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 that's what I want to know. You know, there's that curiosity. How did you carry this, or how did you carry that? And and when you know, uh, I was I've been blessed to have some great mentors in World War II and Vietnam, and you know, they'll tell you quick. They can spot. They they know what's right and wrong and they know what you know right from a general inspection of you and when you have a veteran 
that does your impression that's living, it puts a, a bigger burden on you to try to get it right. I feel like. Yeah, because otherwise try, you're not but, you're almost not not only are you not doing them justice, you're almost it's almost like an insult. Like, hey, I, I'm I'm kind of interested in portraying what you did, but I'm not fully interested enough to get it right as much as my knowledge allows me to do. And I don't want right. to take the free time to do that knowledge. And I'll be honest with you, I would say probably, obviously, a hundred hundred percent of the people I've interviewed on this podcast, but I'd say about seventy five to eighty percent of the people I've uh, interacted with in real life, thankfully, they are dedicated enough amateur historians that most of us, most of our free time or leisure reading is history based. Right. I yeah, I, I don't mean, own a single movie. fiction book. I, everything I read is all biography because to me that's one of the things that draws me. To this is one. My grandfather served in Europe, and I tell people I have an unexplainable, unquenchable thirst for all things World War II. But with that being said, sometimes I'll read the logistical stuff, the troop movements, the you know the the war, the battle histories, and all that. But for me personally, I much would rather read either the biographical or autobiographical story of the people who were there and who actually, because to me, when you read it and you read these stories that are just so insane to actually try to sit there and think, how could I handle that? Or how would I, you know, react in that situation? And then you say, wow, these guys really were there to me. That's so much more, um, addicting almost than reading a fictional story or a comic book or watching a fictional movie. If I have a choice of watching a fictional movie or a biographical based movie, even if they take some historic, you know, some artistic licensing, me personally, I'd much rather watch the historical based movie. And then usually I will go out on Google and try to find the stories of the people that they're portraying to see what happened to them after the timeline of said movie. And that's kind of all how I kind of got into all this is I just, for some reason, that's what draws me in. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm the same way. You know, I'm, I'm studying photos, documentary, or picking up the phone and calling and asking these guys, what would you do about this? How did y'all do this? How did you, and they, there's your, you know, there's everything you need to know. And, and it's really cool to see when some of these, the vets come to an event and they treat you like a new guy. Mm -hmm. would have been in, in in their time period and you need to move this don't wear that there don't do this you don't need that you know they're treating you just like they would somebody back then which like you're going back to what you said earlier you know that they have a respect for what you're doing and an appreciation for what you're doing and you know just try to get it right as best you can you know there's a lot of things we can't get right because we don't have access to it but you know when you do the best you can they they do appreciate it you know yeah, it's, it's weird, too, because sometimes I sit back and I have a, a moment of clarity almost. I'm thinking, why am I so fixated on who made this canteen? And, and the reason I bring that up is before I brought you on, I was introing the show, and I was talking to the audience about a new segment we've done on the website called History Through Photos. Yes, I know it's ironic. Most history is done through photo. But since we're an audio-based medium, for us, it's something different. And last week, I did a story on a canteen that I picked up from the early 40s. had a weird Bakelite cap turned out, turned out. The company who manufactured it moved to Chillicothe, Ohio, which is where my aunt and uncle were school teachers for all this time. And it turns out some of the people who worked there went to church with them. So that was cool. And then last week, because I am a PTO guy and I have a black enamel canteen here, I thought, well, for week two, we're going to do it on this enamel canteen. We'll just kind of do a canteen series before we move on. And it on the bottom, it says 1942, um, U.S. And I think it says... Um, 
the uh, the initials are B E uh, R E P for Republic. It's the actual Republic Stamping and Enabling and Enameling Company. I keep getting that wrong. The Republic Stamping and Enameling Company. So I thought I could just do a quick Google search on that company, find four paragraphs to copy paste, edit, and put up on my website. Would you believe there's like five pages of content on Google about this company, and none of it is about the company. It's just about the uh, their um, the effects they had on the city of Canton, and once again in my hometown of my home state of Ohio. And I even reached out. So like now I'm I'm like obsessed. I want to know why there's no information about the Republic Stamping and Enameling Company, other than a postcard I found of the warehouse that I bought on eBay for six bucks last night. Stupid stuff like that. It's like why? Do, just because it has to do with history in World War II, now I'm fixated on this company and want to know why there's no information out there on the internet. Right, right. And I and I, I can't mean, explain to people why that happens. It's just it's the bug that bites us all. Oh yes. Uh, fortunately, I mean, I work you know working for Coca Cola, we have a huge history with the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, World War II is a, a huge, a huge history where where Coca Cola disassembled production lines and shipped them so that a soldier could have a coke for a nickel no matter where he was at that's amazing and, uh, and you know with the you know the coke products and you see people in vietnam world war ii korea a lot of vets when i tell them i work for coca-cola they go in world war ii that was the first thing they give me when i got off the boat in europe was a coke Maybe um, I'll reach out to you after the podcast and see if maybe you can find me the channel. Um, a few episodes back, maybe a year ago, I actually found uh, the archivist for the John Deere company. And I did an interview right. with him, and we talked about John Deere's war contributions. So maybe um, you could find through the channels, um, get me in touch with the Coca-Cola archivist, and I can have them on, and we can talk a lot of the Coca-Cola um, war contributions in a later episode. And so that that would be awesome because you're absolutely right. Not only did they do that but um at their advertising there's a lot of world war ii based coca-cola advertising out there in old life magazines and things like that oh oh for sure if, if you're ever in atlanta check out the world of coca-cola museum I, in downtown atlanta they I, have a huge display about world war ii the last time i drove through because i have family in kentucky and ohio and atlanta's I literally either drive through it or around it. And um, last time I actually was planning on stopping and running through there, but I was on such a tight schedule that I had to put it off for future. But yeah, that, that would be definitely on my bucket list. Let me ask you this. You said you started back in 1995 and I'm sure reenacting is just like anything else. It comes in ebbs and flows. And right now, especially down here in Florida, as we spoke in the past on this podcast, we're kind of suffering through some residual impact of, um, some social happenings to the point that now on any Florida state owned parks, we can no longer do weapons demos with any firearm that uses brass cartridges. So basically the only people who can do weapons demos are your civil war, your revolutionary warrior and your French American and your Spanish American guy. I mean, Spanish war guys, all the, um, you know, world war one, Vietnam, world war two guys, we can no longer do weapons demos with our firearms. Why? I don't have an official, explanation but um and so some people feel like the the hobby especially down here in florida is hurting a little bit and some people are even concerned that it's dying out as someone who's been in this hobby as long as you have have you seen things like this in the past is it ups and downs is it kind of something 10-year courses where do you think the hobby is well, now and have you seen this in the past well i i think 
I mean, social media has changed the hobby uh, to the point where e everything is covered, uh, sometimes too much. Uh, and you get, a, you know, the internet is full of negativity. Ain't that the truth? And, you know, if we had a proxy and, server that got rid of all the negative um, content on the internet, you could surf every web page in two days. <laughs> oh, probably so. I mean, but I mean, you know, we, there, there's been so so many changes in in the hobby and the and the the hobbyists. You know, I mean, the, what people look for. Uh, you know, and and there's there's a big impasse there. Uh, we did a a kind of a a survey and, and we're asking people you know when you say the word authentic for an event what what exactly do you mean well everybody's talking about you know this little aspect or this little aspect but every to, to the person every person that had ever that hosts an event their comments were well i try to put together a good scenario i try to do this where you have one side worried about camp life and the other side worried about I'm trying to make a scenario that's realistic. So, you know, the two sides aren't working together, so to speak, you know, and, and it's, it's just a, you know, and until you get, until you, you know, we used to, it, you had larger organizations in Civil War that hosted events. Mm -hmm. So you had an um, umbrella organization that was responsible for a thousand people. The biggest event I've ever been to was a Civil War event. And this was my fourth event I ever went to. And this was the 135th of Shiloh. It was 12,900 reenactors. Wow. And, and, you know, and where a local event was a thousand people. Sure. Well, now it's hard, it's hard to get a hundred. It's hard to get 50. It, it, I mean, let's it, be honest. I, well, yes, that's true. 50 is a big, yeah. big number. But one of the things that I see that's changed is used to, I, I did the, the Perry's Texas Rangers, and that was it. And everything in the guidelines of Perry's Rangers, that was my only unit. Same thing with D Company and the same thing with Apache Truce of the 1st of the ninth. I, I, you know, I concentrate on one impression, but now you've got lots of people who maybe you and I do World War II together for two events a year, but you do Indian Wars with somebody else, and this other guy does, uh, you know, other events and other time periods where people are doing multiple time periods because you just don't, you know, you don't have all the annual events like you used to have. So yeah. to be in the hobby, and that's big over here in Louisiana, Texas everybody does a lot of different impressions. Yeah, because it's almost at the point, you know, if you only do, you know, 82nd Airborne, this regiment, this platoon, you might, only, now you may be, you know, only doing two events a year. Whereas if you want to do more events, okay, well, now I got to put a Marine Corps impression so I can go to this event. Now I got to put an Army impression together so I can go, you know, do a D-Day landing up in Ohio. And so it's almost like because how few and far between the events are getting, you know, unless you're a, you know, a multi-state traveler, you know, if you don't have multiple impressions, you're going to minimize the amount of events. And that's how I got into doing, uh, the first ID impression is my first impression is the, uh, my audience knows was Marine Corps. But, um, back when I started six years ago, you know, we didn't have the event in Alabama and we didn't, you know, it was a year and a half before I did my first Marine Corps tactical that Mike Blowski put together. Um, 
And so I would found myself, you know, doing living history events, which was fine, but I was the only Marine Corps guy there. So I would set up my display in my tent. I was new to the hobby, so I really didn't know the ways of the world. But luckily I found a nice guy who ran a first ID event, I mean group, and I would tag along with them and set my camp up next to them. And, you know, John finally said, hey, why don't you slowly start putting an army impression together so you can do more events with us and you can go out and participate in reenactments because at the time there were no Marine Corps reenactments. And so I was just right. doing weapons demos as the – and what usually would happen is because John had a uh, Winchester trench gun and when we were doing weapons demo, I would always do the Winchester because it was used more in the Pacific than it was in European theater. So why not have the one Marine who's at this event doing a Marine Corps impression – have him demo the trench gun while you have all the first ID guys do the M1 Garands and on down the line. And so in order to, like you say, do more events, I started doing a first ID impression as well. Right. I mean, and that's, you know, that that's how we, we've grown our units is, you know, you, you pick up a guy here and there and, and you end up, well, I know twice a year I get this guy for an event where I'd love to have him, 10 events you know but i know he goes and does other stuff and i have several guys that do that i don't i don't have a problem with that but but sometimes it just you know i mean people don't have the money we, we went through a recession for mm -hmm. years where they're just you know and that hurt reenactments too because sure. you know the luxury items have to go and uh and going to an event out of state or out of town you know it's going to cost you money and and you know there's a lot of little things like that the logistics of it and then you know unfortunately politics gets into everything yep. so and and that's gonna you know that's ego versus ego and it messes everything up so but events have changed you know with the the way and we used to have in world war ii we had a world war ii tactical and and that was it you know you just come as your impression and and it was just a, a tactical and then you know i think sometimes at some point some events tried to micromanage it down too much. Now I'm all for authenticity. I want it to be as authentic as possible, but you got to be realistic with it too. You know, a lot of people don't want to go out and buy an impression for one event and never get to use it again. Yeah. And, and you no. know, so it's either way you go, it's, you know, it's, it can be harmful or it can be constructive either way. But I mean, Well, and that's the problem. We, especially you were talking about the social media's impact on the hobby. Um, very, I, I don't want to say a lot, but, you know, especially with the younger cats, um, fewer and fewer people are interested in offering constructive criticism, taking a guy uh, to the side at an event and explaining some things that could take improvement in a nice delicate way they're more interested in snapping a picture of the guy without his, his knowledge and then going on facebook's farb fest posting up there and talking crap about him for five paragraphs and then next time he sees him at an event uh, assuming that that person didn't see him talking crap about him on f facebook sit there and act like they're good buddies so he can get some more content for farb fest later on down the road which is you know that in itself is just kind of discouraging Oh, that, that is discouraging. I hate that, that, that part of it. And, you know, I've hosted events for since 2000, 2004 or 2005. Uh, and you know, that I, I feel like this, you know, as an event host and, and I wish people could, could, could meet me halfway and think about this, you know, why, why am I, why am I not controlling everybody? you know, this way, well, it shouldn't be me for me to control. If you've got a unit 
why aren't you controlling that before you come to the event? Because at the event, that's the last time. You're already you, there. I mean, you can't fix it then. Right. You can't fix it then. Do you but, think Do you, you know, think uh, some groups have a issue with the structure of leadership um, simply because not that they don't have people willing to step up to play the leadership role? It's obviously, you know, none of us, you know, even those who have served and some people are active duty, but even still in, in the environment in which we participate in these events obviously rank has no true rank to it but it does have right. a purpose for logistical ways you know kind of like you're saying you have the guy who's spent a year and a half getting the insurance together finding the property getting all the minutiae that it takes to put together an event whether it's a world War, a living history event or a concert there's so much stuff that has to be done in the background that each group who's coming they need to have a structure of leadership so that they can get their guys on the, you know, wherever their role is at the event, whether it's out on the battle or setting up living history displays, they need to be able to micromanage their groups to make everything run proficiently. And, and, I, and I almost wonder if maybe it's because of the way that everybody feels nowadays that I ain't listening to no one, I'm all about me, 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 that it's harder to get that structure of leadership going because – when you try to explain to somebody, hey, I need you to do this, do that, they think it's a personal assault on their character and how dare you think you're better than me. No, it has nothing to do with that. I'm just trying to make this event move along. We have places to be. We have timelines, literally. You know, uh, the right. event the event organizer told on the radio, hey, at 1 o'clock this is going to happen, at one thirty, And so they have a structure for the public so they know when things are going on and in order to get that timeline moving – the organizer needs the help of everybody. And so when you have, if your group has a structure of hierarchy, it's not because that person wants to be in charge and tell you what to do. It's they're trying to do their part to keep the event moving smoothly as a well-oiled machine and not because they think they're better than you. That would really help out the hobby uh, greatly. If, if, you know, now I'm an event host and sponsor for our and coordinator at two different events. And now one thing that I look for is I want a unit to come in. I want a squad that has a squad leader and has, has already has the chain of command because I want to deal with that one guy. I don't want to have to deal with eight individuals. Exactly. And, and it's uh, easier for you. Okay. You're, you're trying to find, okay, I need a group to do a weapons demo at noon. You want to walk into a bivouac, see a guy with, you know, a uh, lieutenant pin on and say, hey, lieutenant, who can, do you have anybody? You don't want to sit there and say, well, no one has stripes, everybody's privates or everybody's sergeants. And who do I ask? You know, you just, for the sake of productivity, once again, and, and streamlining all stuff, you need to look around, see who has the highest rank and assume that for the sake of this week and that rank means something among that group. So that, that that's the guy you go to when you need something done and not have four people, no, you need to find borrowers, but you know, that hierarchy just helps so much. Oh, it does. Yeah, it, this is interesting that you bring this up because over the past year, I, I have a friend that is a lieutenant colonel at Fort Polk and, and uh, Colonel Mark Leslie. And Mark Leslie has been an influence on me, He's, you know, teaching me this, teaching me that. And he does an after action with me on uh, Tigerland, which, you know, I'll, I'll tell you more about. Sure. Uh, but one of the things that Colonel Leslie says is the biggest problem that that I have as a coordinator and and trying to put together a tactical plan is I have absolutely no way to truly assess my troops. 
everybody operates at a different level. Mm-hmm. You've got guys that spent 20 years in the Army down to a guy that just recently bought a rifle and doesn't even know how to operate it. But how to get these guys to function in, in a way to complete an objective, that's the, that's the, the key for the, the event coordinator. Now, you know, event coordinators everywhere, uh, they take a lot of heat for missions that don't get accomplished, or people being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. But how do I know if you know how to read a map? Yeah. How do I know if you know how to read a military grid? I mean, I have no way to realistically know. And that's that's what makes it difficult for making events work in, in, a, in, in a better way. And Well, not only that, but... To, I would assume, I've only been doing this for seven years, but I would assume you could probably attest to this because of your longevity in this hobby. Um, because of the, we're kind of in a downslope right now and the fact that uh, a lot of groups members, you know, you'll have a one group and these guys are all really good at showing up at events, but in real life they live two, three, four, five hours away from each other. And so it's hard to get together once every three months to do training. Whereas if you all lived in the exactly. same town because the numbers were so big, Hey, this weekend we're going to go out to the camp. You know, we're going to go out to this property or show up here on Saturday. Let's do some, you know, drills and all that. It's just so hard to do. But yeah, it, it's very hard to do. I mean, we're in the same situation. I've got guys from all the way from North Alabama to Texas. Yeah. So I mean, and you know, and, and, and thank you God can't for pick them. A weekend. Yeah, you can't pick a weekend to get everybody together. So I mean, it, it's it's really hard to do and. You know, it's not. A, I'm not being critical of of anybody because I'm I'm go through it myself. But it's it's very hard to do. But so you've got to have you've got to have some guys within that unit that can help you out and and not be a critic afterwards. <clears throat> you know, I mean, that can like you were saying, you got to have that strong NCO and the chain of command that can can move you forward so that everybody's on the same uh, same sheet of music and and, it, and, and it's kind of funny because i recently i ran into someone i hadn't talked to in a while and he's surprised he's like oh you're a first lieutenant now and i think he was kind of put off because i've only been doing this for six years but as you and i were saying before when it comes to at least in my perspective the hierarchy of um leadership the rank sometimes doesn't exactly rely on a person's knowledge or the tenure of how long they've been doing it in the hobby it may be that the the person organizing the group or the event um you know has discovered that this person has whether it's a residual effect from their career for example obviously i've been doing this podcast for uh, two years and three months before this i i hosted the number one afternoon show in southwest florida for six and a half years this show has been on the air same group of guys since the 90s part of my job as a radio producer is to get things done in real time that the two hosts can't do because they are stuck behind a microphone talking in live time whether it's answering phones booking guests uh, i remember newtown shooting i had to go out and get all the you know the articles and all that um anytime we put on a big concert i had to you know logistic logistic get rock bands interviews and so because of my career my job as a producer is to produce, be self-manageable, get things done, and be heavily relied upon. And so at a World War II event, yes, it's World War II in its history, but it's no different than a rock concert or any other sort of event. I understand logistics. I understand 
you know, someone asks me to do something, I don't micromanage or well, I don't know how to do that. I process it. I figure out a way to get it done. And I think the people in the leadership and the groups that I hang out with saw that and realized, back to what you were saying, that if I'm not in camp and the organizer comes to my group and needs someone to be reliable, answer questions, and get stuff done without too many questions, Don's the perfect guy because that's what he does for a living, being a radio producer and not to mention owning two businesses. He's the perfect guy. And so, yes, he may not be part of my group for as long as somebody else, and that other person may get hurt because he has a higher rank, but he gets that rank because he is reliable and he can get things done not so much in a war type, but in an event thing. Because let's be honest, reenacting, living history, it's a show. It's a production at different levels. Obviously, if you're up in Ohio on Lake Erie for the D-Day event with that many people, that's a huge production. Some of it's a smaller production, and you need to be able to rely on somebody in each group to get things done without a lot of hand-holding and micromanaging. And that's where your, right. that's where your ranking really comes into play at. Right, exactly. I mean, it, you get a lot of people that, you know, they want to say, uh, you know, the hashtag not my officer yeah. movement, you know. And, not uh, my monkey, but, not my circus. Right, but there's a lot of people that th- they'll play along and they'll help you any way they can, which makes your job a whole lot easier. And, and you know, the rank really, the higher up the chain you go, the less ammo you need to buy for an event because you're not probably not going to be shooting. Yeah, right. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, it, 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 you got to find people that are willing to step over that line. And that's, that's the, you know, some of the younger reenactors, I, I, I talk about that, you know, is, is it's time for them to kind of step over that line and want to help and be on this side, the management side. Sure. And, and maybe it's not as much fun. It's, you know, it's not as much fun when you know where the ambush is or you have an idea what time they're going to hit the camp or, you know, things like that that you keep from people so that you get that full on effect when it happens. And, and, but we got to incorporate people in. And, and I think if everybody should try to help host an event one time, because you'll be more sympathetic to the mm-hmm. poor guy who, who continues to do it, the glutton, you know, <laughs> so, so to speak. But you'll have, you'll have more of a respect for him, I think. And, and I mean, I've been really lucky. I've got good people around me. I, I mean, I've, you know, they, they keep me out of trouble. That's all I can say is, is, We've pulled, we've had some successful things, and uh, you know, and it, it's a team effort, it, it for sure. But you, you've got to have those people who are willing to play the game, and we just need more of them. And to, if you could put all that imagination together for one purpose, we'd have a great event. Yeah, I, I the the irony that I always find, especially leading up to the event, if you're on the social media pages, you hear people we 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 need to be authentic and this and that, which is great. But then a lot of times those are the same people who don't want to park their car somewhere inconvenient so that we don't see it. <laughs> it's like, you know, great, we got this beautiful bivouac set up right next to Steve's F one fifty because he don't want them parked it down the street. Thanks, Steve. That's the stuff right, that drives right. me nuts. I really wish we can get the uh you know the creature comforts part taken care of, but that's another complaint from another time. Now, I, interesting enough, we speaking of social media, we lived in a cancel culture for a while. As far as you say things that offend people on the internet, you're going to lose your career. But now we're literally living in a cancel culture, which means 
the coronavirus is getting everything canceled from Spartan races to football, se- not football, but hockey season, basketball season, and all that. And so we're going to go into this next segment with the caveat of make sure you always check online with the latest updates on whatever event you're planning because it could get canceled. But just because it's a small possibility for future events doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about future events and get the word out there so you guys can get them on your calendar and plan to go and just keep in mind that there's always a small chance, especially if it's in May or June or July, that it could get canceled. But hopefully this whole nightmare and this whole you know thing we're all going through worldwide, it will be over by then. But just with that caveat, you have a couple events coming up. One of them is May 15th through the 18th in Mississippi. Why don't you tell the audience about that? All right. The the event is May 15th through 18th. It is called the Trail of Honor. You can check us out at trailofhonor.org, and we have a Facebook page. Uh, if you're a reenactor, it's a great event. It's a living history timeline. Uh, the difference is we have a half-mile trail cut through the woods, and each time period has its own station. And we we start at French and Indian War, and we finish up the – I don't know if you're familiar with the movie um, Acts of Valor. That was about the Navy SEALs. The boat team from that movie is actually based in Mississippi, and they that's how you end the trail is demonst- they demonstrate their boats. Uh, now is this the trailer you can crawl in them is this the first time you guys have put on this sort of timeline or is this an annual event no this is an annual event and it's been going on since 2002 i love the idea Uh, of the trail through the woods because that's kind of the other you know no matter how much time energy and effort and you can't blame the organizers because property is property and layouts are layouts but i love the idea that you guys have been able to Maybe not completely. I haven't seen the layout of the property, but I'm. You guys have used the woods as a partitioning, if you will, so that while you're standing in your, uh, you know, Spanish American War a bivouac, you're not seeing the Vietnam guys walking around loading their M1, you know, their M16s and all that. So I really think that's a great idea and way to kind of partition up the the groups by using the trees and the natural environment to put a border in between each group. Oh yes, exactly. We have we have on on the site we have opposing uh, breastworks for the Civil War with six artillery pieces. We have uh, a Huey in the Vietnam area. We have a crashed Huey. This is only part of the event. Let me tell you that because we, the World War One has trench lines, World oh, War Two has tunnels, and each each the reenactors maintain the, each individual area of their own. When you come to the end of the trail past Vietnam, you come to the, the traveling wall. We have the Vietnam traveling wall there. Inside the building, you'll have Medal of Honor recipients. Uh, at most, we've had five. And it varies from year to year by their uh, avail- available times. And uh, But we have public battles for Vietnam, World War II, and Civil War. Uh, we have a special boat team. And we have, if you're a reenactor, you're going to get fed three times a day. You've got a place to stay. You've got hot showers. You go to a VIP dinner with the, with the Medal of Honor guys and all the VIP guys. You'll have guys from Vietnam, Korea. Ronald Rosser is a Vietnam, uh, uh, Korean War veteran, Medal of Honor recipient, very nice guy. He's an annual attendee. Uh, Jack Lucas, who's the youngest 
uh, Medal of Honor recipient, I believe, Marine from uh, Iwo Jima. Uh, Woody Williams attends when he's available. We've had Bruce Crandall. We've had uh, Jack uh, Mike Thornton, Navy SEAL that, from Vietnam. We've had a lot of we've had a lot of different personalities in and out there. We'll have Tuskegee Airmen, Navajo Beautiful. Code Talkers. Several museums will be set up out in front of the building. We'll have the Sky Soldiers out of Atlanta uh, selling helicopter rides, and the Hueys and the Cobras. So there's a lot going on, and all this is absolutely free to the public and free to the reenactor that wants to come. And I would assume if you're a uh, lone reenactor from out of state and um, you join up with the Facebook page that uh, there are people, like if you're a Civil War guy or a World War One guy or a World War II guy, um, people kind of, you know, fill you out, find out what your impression are, is and uh, what, you know, and find a group to kind of fall you in with so that when you go up there for the weekend and you're traveling from out of state, you know, you'll have a, you know, a group to fall in with and kind of get you hooked up with a line of contact? Yes, indeed. I mean, you can contact me I, uh, from from Facebook or uh, I can give you my contact information through the podcast to post it. You can contact me. And then I, there's somebody over the, the early eras, and then we got somebody over the modern. We have, you know, we have people that you can get in contact with, or if you just by chance you contact this. This event is at a Harley Davidson dealership in Mississippi. Harley doesn't have anything to. It's not a sales promotion for the event because the event, the last day of the event, is on a Monday. That's whenever the Vietnam veterans that ride from California to D.C. for the uh, Rolling Thunder, that's when they come through Jackson and they stop for lunch. So it's a, it's a very, you know, we have around 30,000 spectators a year, plus about 600 bikes come through on Monday. It's a great event. It's a one of a kind. And roughly, uh, you know, how big is the property out there? How many acres do you think it is, roughly? Ooh. Man, that would be that would be hard to say. Uh, well, I mean, just in in front of the building, we land all the the air assets, so we'll have up to five helicopters landed in front of the building. And then obviously and the woods then, out back. Right, and then we we'll have an average of 150 to 200 reenactors on the trail, a staff of 120 people. So we it's a it's a huge. Uh, it's a huge site. Now, obviously planning for these sort of things happen years in advance and, and you have your regulars who go annually, who's been there before. Is there a particular group or timeline of reenactors that you guys are scarce on this year that the registration's low for is a particular timeline that you're trying to, uh, find is there, you know, are you, are you guys short on world war one guys? Are you guys hurting on world war two guys? Is there, it, you know, obviously everybody's welcome, but is there a particular timeline that maybe someone has in their closet they haven't pulled out in a while that uh, you could really use some help from? I could really use some help in the early time periods of war, uh, French, and, not French and Indian, but uh, Rev War, War of 1812. Uh, and I'm really looking for some guys that do 18, 1840s Mexican War and uh, World War One, World War Two, and Desert Storm. I mean, I'd love to find some Desert Storm guys. Uh, I, I've slowly seen a couple of those guys around Florida popping up. You know, I was going to talk about this earlier. Someone often asked me, well, 
you know, in the reenacting community, how does people decide what they, what their um, ideal specialty is? And obviously, one, it's it's whatever history bug bites you. But I think, as a gen- general rule of thumb, not that there's a rule, I think for a lot of people, it depends on you know, who they know, if they have a particular family member, you know, a younger cat, their grandfather may have fought in uh, Vietnam, so now he's interested in portraying Vietnam, or even a younger group, their uncle may have been in Desert Storm or, you know, Iraqi Freedom, and so they they may have a draw towards that. And so as these wars are getting further away, you're starting to see Vietnam impressions popping up. You're starting to see early Desert Storm impressions popping up. And as time goes by, I think more and more of those impressions will start to develop as the people who are family members of that generation get older uh, to where they can afford to assemble those impressions. And so I find it's always interesting each year to see what newer impressions and what newer timelines are starting to pop up because those particular you know, interactions are getting further and further down the timeline. Oh, I agree with you. I, I think, you know, time, as time goes on, there's more research material available, you know, and I mean, so people have an interest in it, but just don't know where to go get it right now. And, you know, I know there's people out there that do these time periods and, and but they're hard to locate. And yeah. if you locate them, they're, they're always way out of your area of operation. And, um, I found some really good guys in different time periods, but they would be hard to get there. And so, I, you know, it goes back to what we were talking about previously. A lot of guys, it's just a one or one man or two man show that does an impression, and they do all great impressions. They're they're awesome from head to toe. But unfortunately, I can't get them. Yeah, you know, and uh, and a lot of them never hear about an event like this. You know, so. I mean, it, it's a, like I say, it's a one-of-a-kind. I've been going, I've, I've missed one year uh, since it started, and I've been the coordinator. This is my second year to be the coordinator over uh, the whole trail. So it's it, it's it's a great job. I love it. And, I mean, it's a great event, and it, it's, worth, it's worth everything you spend to get there. You, you're going to love it. Once again, we're talking with Daryl Price, and um, he is a living historian and a uh employee of the Coca-Cola company, which is fantastic. But um, please, once again, if, if any of our audience who, you know, are wanting to um, do some living history outside of World War II, or once again, they, they are putting the, that type of impression together, if they want to get more information on this event, is there, give the name of the websites, the Facebook pages out, and uh, where are the best places to go to get more information on this uh, event? Okay. We are also looking World War II. We'd love to have you, sure. Pacific or European. We we're looking for every impression, and the more the um, I mean, the more the better. So, I'll give you my address. It, it, it's it's to post later, but it's dprice one nine a at gmail dot com. That'll get straight to me. Okay, and for the people wanting uh, the Facebook page, what's the Facebook page again? The Facebook page is the trail of honor.com oh no trail of honor just search that on facebook yep. yep so trail go to trail of honor dot or trail of honor dot org or search trail of honor in facebook and as always we say this if you guys are listening uh, through um apple podcast or itunes or spotify stitcher google music any of that stuff anytime we have someone on the show whether they're promoting an event promoting a book promoting a movie whatever 
we always have the pertinent links to the books, the websites, the events, what have you on the page. So whenever you see a new episode show up on your app, if you head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com, right on the homepage, there will be a, a page ex- specifically for that episode, and there will be photos of the people we're talking to, there will be photos of events we're talking about, and there will be email contacts and links to the pertinent websites and Facebook pages. So obviously you don't need to pause, rewind this, and write that information down. We just like to get it out there for those of you with great photographic memory. For the rest of you, simply head over to d um d-410.com is the mother page. Sorry, I got four podcasts. You can go to d-410.com. Um, all the episodes are posted there as well. But go to WTSPWorldWar2.com. That's WTSPWWII.com. And right on the homepage, you'll see the logo for this, uh, this episode. And all the information will be right there. And hopefully we can get some people out. You know, one of the other things when it comes to living history, especially with the northern events, is because of the winter time and, and the small window of good quality weather, a lot of times events happen on the same weekend, and so you almost have to cherry pick which ones you're going to. And sometimes there's events that you were on the fence about going to, but they're just way too far for you to physically get to. And so it's nice to have event that maybe you know that you can get to that's even closer and so this is a another great event that we need to get the word out get some people there who aren't going to other events that weekend and let's support everybody so if you're not going to event on the weekend of may 15th through the 18th you want to head over to this one by all means join the facebook page maybe we'll have you back on in the future but real quick i know you have another event that you're excited about on june 12th let's give a little uh, preview into that that's right. This, the event on June 12th is a tactical event. It's <clears throat> Vietnam at the tactical at Tigerland is the name of the Facebook page. That's where you'll find us. The Tigerland was the largest tra- training area the Army had for infantry going to Vietnam. The, uh, and this event takes place on part of the actual training ground. The foxholes are still there. They're filled in, but you know, there's you can still find the foxholes. You can still find uh, spent blank cartridges. Now let that sink and, in for and, a moment. Obviously, Vietnam happened over in Vietnam. For you Vietnam right. living historians, your Vietnam reenactors, this is the closest thing you're going to get to a Gettysburg for your event. You're actually going to be at the place where the people you're portraying actually trained the the foxholes that they dug that they sat in that they did their quote-unquote war games this is the probably unless you are an international flyer and there's an event going on somewhere in vietnam i doubt it uh just for the political side of it this is your this is your chance i mean for a vietnam reenactor to have the ability to go to an event that takes place on partial property that the real guys trained on this would be the equivalent of uh, 101st guys going to you know heading up to um, Curry He and, and doing that march. And so this is a huge thing. You're exactly right. I mean, this is, you're, you're walking along and there's, on some of the hills, the rocks, they carved their names in them. And so you're seeing some of the guys' names that trained there. A million men went through there to go to Vietnam. And, I mean, it's, you find veterans that have been through it that'll come back and they'll they'll come out and hang out with us for the weekend and tell stories about what it was like there. Uh, the heat, the bugs, the snakes, and it's all still there. You know, we've got it all. 
and being in June, it's pretty high temperatures. So you're but saying it's, uh, it's be real. prepared to embrace the suck? Exactly. Embrace the suck because it, it, it can. We Several years ago, it was 100, 112 the weekend we were there. and uh, But this year, it's going to be a little bit different than years past. We're doing a campaign march. We've got the actual route that the Army used. The area we're in is the northernmost area of Tigerland. So the Tigerland training area is actually about 20, 30 miles long. And you had different areas of it where they lived on Fort Polk at the North Fort, and they were trucked out to, to a location called Tiger Ridge. From Tiger Ridge, they walked into the area called the Horse's Head. That's where we're at is the Horse's Head. And in this area, they had navig land nav courses. They had ambush trails. Um, you know, so the spider holes that they used, they took 55-gallon drums and buried them in the ground and would crawl down in them and put cover over their head and then stand up and shoot. The spider holes are, are you know, in the hillsides and still, we still use them. They, but, I mean, you, you've got, you know, you, you are on as close as you're going to get to Vietnam. If you've ever watched the Vietnam in High Definition series that came on on, on History Channel, uh -huh. they do a section about Tigerland. And the hills, it, once you get to our Facebook page, when you see the hills that are in our pictures, that's the hills on the video that they were attacking where they're jumping out of the deuce and a half running up the hill. It's the same place. And it all, almost looks the same now. It's, uh, you know, I just had a know, thought. It, it, we were kind of talking about how this is going to be, you know, a, for a Vietnam reenactor, you're Gettysburg. Um, you know, it's also for you Vietnam reenactors, this is kind of like you're um, the equivalent to, the the World War II reenactors who live in Europe who have the distinct pleasure to interact with veterans who are coming back to that area for the first time or the second time since they were there originally, I'm sure there's going to be, you know, Vietnam vets who come from other states who train there who are now walking around and checking it out. No, you said it's a tactical event, right? Right. It's but, a tactical event. We've had Vietnam vets that come out and went on patrol with us. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we had a guy that was a recon guy from the 173rd Airborne that he went out and humped it all day with the guys. Wore his uh, uniform from Vietnam and his gear. And and we've had uh, Vietnam vets that go out and teach. That's got to be emotional for them, part. too. It's just got to be surreal oh, to be back to where you were when you are 18 before you... You know, you went off overseas to fight in this war. You're back to where all your training. Because so many of the, you know, you know, it's definitely the World War II, and I'm sure a lot of the Vietnam, a lot of those boot camp facilities are, are closed down because we had to build so many of them because of the amount of men we had to train. So, you know, those wartime boot camps, a lot of them are long, most of them, I don't even want to say a lot, most of them are long gone. And so for these guys to have the ability to go back out in this, hot sweaty place that they were at when they were 17 18 19 and 20 and just relive that for the week and that in itself's got to be very emotional and very cool to be around oh it it, it is i mean it, and it's great to have them involved to the degree that we do a good friend john eli was with the 25th infantry he will play the part of the italian commander for the whole weekend and chuck tony was in military intelligence in vietnam and he's 
on hand and and they're always giving tips and 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 you know it, it's great to have them there and we've had other guest stars so to speak that that's come in of uh, uh, Craig Jorgensen actually <clears throat> in the unit that I reenact and he came from Seattle Washington to spend a weekend with us <clears throat> and which was really cool to have him out on patrol and this year well I, was, I got off track but this year we're doing something that's different for the Vietnam events, we're, we're adding a campaign element into it where we're going to do a 10 mile, 10 mile hike at, uh, at night. Nice. We're taking one, one platoon out to live, to live out and, and, you know, march in into the site pre-dawn and then fight all day. And then where you'll have different locations. We have, we have a lot of trucks. We have deuce and a half. So we have, We've even had APCs there, 113. And uh, so we, we're mobile, moving from one place to another. And we have our battlefield is four square miles. Nice. So we have a, a great, a, a solid road network. We have uh, from a, a paved road, gravel road, down to a trail. And a lot of the trails were the trails that they were using. The route that we'll be taking on the march was the route that the Army used to move their men from the, the Tiger Ridge to the horse's head in the 1960s. And for those listening right now who are excited because they just recently gotten a Vietnam impression, I actually know probably about five, five or six Florida guys who just did a Vietnam impression up in Georgia. I'm sorry, not Georgia. I've, I've done some events up at the Mount Dora event. We had our World War II bivouac down at the bottom of the hill. And the top of the hill, they actually had a firebase dug. And they had a very cool uh, Vietnam firebase. And they, we actually had a Huey flying people in and out. But I do know that there was five or six guys up there who were getting heavy into the Vietnam stuff. And I know for a fact, two of them listen to this podcast. And so if you're listening to this podcast and you're doing Vietnam living history, where would they go to find more information and register for this event? Go to Tactical at Tigerland on Facebook. It's the the Tactical at Tigerland. The, it, the date June June twelfth through fourteenth. That that will, will get you into registration. Everything will be done. You can get the website, or you can get the email address for registration. Pre registration. We we love pre registration. It helps us with logistics. It's thirty dollars, forty dollars at the gate, and we'll have vendors. Uh, like I say, we'll, you know, we're going to have different missions for different people, depending on how how big we can expand. We might have an overnight position. We might send a squad out into an OPLP position to uh, just sit and listen to the listen to the woods at night. We we may have to have uh, a unit to guard the base camp from ambush. We have a very active uh, VC NVA element there, and they do a really good job keeping you on your toes. And real quick, because I don't think we covered it for the uh, history trail on May fifteenth through the eighteenth. Is there registration for that event? No, it's no. There's no reg. The registration is a check-in procedure, but there's not a, a paid registration. No. Well, you guys I mean, probably free, have. But you do of, have to register. Yeah, yeah, there's a register strictly for lo- going back to logistics to know how many portajons are going to need or how right, many. Right. You know, if we're feeding you, how much food we need to order. So. Obviously, if you're yeah. even remotely interested in that, go register. Um, it's better to register ahead of time so they can be prepared for you, even if there, something comes up and you can't go. And once again, we're all living in this cancer world. Everything's getting cancered, not cancered, canceled. 
thank God not cancer, uh, canceled. So there, there are small possibilities that, you know, hopefully the time June rolls around, we're past all this stuff. And some of the doctors are saying, you know, time June rolls around, we should be on definitely in the downside of all this and hopefully by May so that the uh, history trail event still continues, which is even more important why today, you know, you guys want to go out and join these Facebook groups so that you can get it on your calendar, plan to go, but also just just keep it in the back of your mind. I'm sure I'll have to tell you all this. We all deal with it now. Your movies are getting canceled and everything else. But there's a small chance that, you know, it may get canceled. But it, for me personally, I think it works better to assume it's not going to get canceled, prepare like you would for any other event, and if it gets canceled, so what? Now you have extra blanks and some food rations stored up in your garage and not a big deal. Right. I mean, we would, we would rather... We would rather you do that than, because it's easy, you know, we'd rather have too much than not enough. Absolutely. And at both events, I'll, I'll straighten this out. I mean, at the trail, we do want you to register so we know you're coming, but there's no fees for registration. Everything that I listed above is, you know, is covered. So all we just need some bodies there and just the need to know you're coming. Once again, it's Daryl Price. Daryl, thank you so much for spending the time with me and my audience and uh, getting word out, not only getting word out about these events, but I, I really think you and I covered some um, important topics as far as where living history is now and some things that people can do to help their group, help organizers better facilitate and make events run smoother. I think we we put some good quality information out there. We got the word out about some great events coming up and thank you so much for sharing your time, your knowledge and your history with all of us. And I look forward to hopefully getting up to uh, both those events and maybe we'll bring the old uh, mobile studio out and we'll uh, get some episodes and hopefully interview some, uh, you know, some veterans and uh, it'd be great to actually get a uh, medal of honor winner. Well, no winners kind of a well medal of honor recipient, uh, on, on, on our show for the first time that would be a great um you know thing to have in our archives but thank you so much for all of everything you're doing getting the word out there and um and everything you're doing for the community it's been a pleasure and uh thanks so much well thank you for having me and i look forward to seeing you there this has been a digital 410 production <laughs>